Good morning, family. How are we doing this morning? Good. If you, want to, if you have a Bible, please open it to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 is where we'll be this morning. As I, uh, as I approach, I have a... My oldest son is graduating uh, high school, and at the same time, I'm simultaneously holding my six-month-old son. Those two realities, they kind of force me to reflect a lot. And particularly, I've been kind of reflecting on what life is like now at 38 with a six-month-old compared to what it was at 19 with a six-month-old. To say things are a bit different would be an understatement, and by God's grace, I've, I've learned a few things as a parent. I'm not as young as I used to be, and I think I can do a few things a little bit better. But a few months after Titus's birth, my wife, she began going back to work part-time, and that typically looks like for her um, evening shifts. So recently, uh, during one of those evening shifts, as I was awaiting my wife's return home, while I'm trying to warm up a bottle and rock Titus back to sleep, I was reminded or really thought back, reflecting back to the first time at age 19 I was left alone with Peyton and Julie was gone. I had encouraged Julie to take off for a few hours. I got this. And I'm not sure what was worse, whether me making the statement or Julie believing that that statement was safe, but she left. And shortly after she did, Peyton began crying. And there was nothing I could do. I tried to rock him. I tried to swing him. We had a little uh, area we could ride around, the little cart in, the baby stroller. But nothing that I did helped. It was miserable. I felt helpless. I felt unequipped. Um, for those few hours, I, it took everything I had in me not to call Julie or my mom or anyone else just to get things going in the right direction, I thought. But the absence of her presence during that time was something I forever remember. I can remember waiting with maybe bated breath for Julie to simply arrive home looking out the blinds. All I wanted was her to be with me, at home with me in this situation. There's something about knowing a person is with you, dwelling with you, knowing that they're side by side with you. Maybe you can't relate to being 19 with a young child waiting for your spouse to come home. But you can probably remember a time when the absence of someone's presence was difficult. Maybe you're even dealing with that now. Maybe it's the losing of a loved one or being separated from someone for an extended period of time when all you wanted was to be in their presence, to dwell with them, to be in their midst. The felt presence of someone is a powerful thing. And this is really the heart of Exodus 25 through 27. This long section, we enter this morning dealing with the tabernacle. And while this portion of Scripture, in many ways it's difficult to our modern sensibilities, with all the details, all the instructions, its message is clear and straightforward. Exodus 25 through 37, and then the construction of the tabernacle later, is the Lord's distinct declaration to His people, His shouting to them, I am with you. I am present with you. I am in your midst. 
Now this section covers many chapters, which is rather interesting if we consider the book as a whole. We've been going through Exodus now for a few months. Chapter 25 begins the longest divine speech in the book of Exodus. This book contains about two and a half chapters of actually outlining the Exodus of in itself, the whole title of the book. Two and a half chapters made up the people of Israel actually being rescued and parting the, the Red Sea and putting their feet on the other side of the shore. Two and a half chapters to the Exodus of in itself. There's barely one chapter dealing with the first 80 years of Moses' life. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. There's less than one chapter covering the Ten Commandments. But now we enter into 12 chapters regarding the tabernacle. At this point in the book, it's tempting to think, look, we've already been through all the, the good stuff, right? Calling of Moses, the plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the giving of the Ten Commandments on the mountain, and finally the covenant ceremony that we dealt with last week. So, so what's left? Well, 15 chapters, that's what's left. And most of these 15 chapters will be concerning the tabernacle. Chapters 25 through 31 deal with the instruction of the tabernacles and really all the things associated with worshiping with the tabernacle or in the tabernacle. And then 35 through 40 contain the actual building or construction of the tabernacle with many things we're going to see that are going to be repeated in 35 through 40, repeated verbatim to what we're going to see this morning. And then in between, chapters 32 to 34, we have the golden calf narrative. So as we finish out the rest of our series in the, the book of Exodus, we could really think about it this way. What lies ahead of us will be the instructions this morning and next week, and then the interruption in the golden calf narrative, and then the construction to finish things out. So why so many chapters on something so tedious something so seemingly distant from us, and something which seems, if we're honest, irrelevant to anyone but the original readers of the text. Well, I think practically the Israelites, the Israelites needed to know how to build this thing. If they were going to build a structure that would in fact contain the very presence of God, that He said He would dwell with them in their midst through this tabernacle, then they needed something better than like, Ikea bad directions. Instructions are essential. And I know some of you have an aversion to instructions, but they're essential. But beyond really practical importance, look, there is rich theological significance here in the text this morning. And we cannot miss it. What we have here through God's detailed instruction it's His divine declaration of His promised presence with His people. So I want to give you a main idea, as I always do, and then we are going to dive through these details this morning and hopefully come out the other side with a better picture of Jesus. The main idea is this, that God redeems us to dwell with us, that His glory might be known through us. The book of Exodus, God redeems us. It's the redemption of God. God redeems us so that He will dwell with us. That His glory might be known through us. 
Now, given the somewhat unusual nature of this portion of the text, my sermon is going to be a bit different this morning, too. In the first half of our time, I'm going to kind of walk through these instructions, both chapters. We're going to make some application along the way. But then I'm going to close out our time, maybe even the second half of our sermon, by giving us really what I think are two theological truths concerning the tabernacle instructions. We're going to walk through the instructions first, and then we're going to close with two theological truths concerning these particular tabernacle instructions and how they relate to us today. Before we do that, I want to pause and go for a a moment of prayer to our God. Father, with joy, as has been said, we pray to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I, I pray every time we open up your word, we... We do so not to just heed instructions. We do so not just to learn some information. We do to encounter you, the divine person. That you might change us and mold us and make us into the image of your Son. Lord, might we see through the instruction this morning the beauty of who you are. Might we see the distance that stands between us and you due to our sin. And might we see what you have done to bring about your nearness, your proximity, your very presence to dwell with us in Christ. Lord, guard our our time. Guard me as a preacher. Lord, help me to point us to Christ through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin with some simple headings. We're going to take, probably you have these same, same or similar headings in your Bible. We're going to take them one at a time and kind of work through the instructions. In the text, and we begin first with the contributions of the tabernacle. So, before really the details begin this morning, these detailed instructions begin that God's going to provide us. The Lord deals first with the motivation behind all of this. God is most concerned with His people's heart. He's most concerned with people, His people's heart in worship. Their contribution will be required for this construction, but it will not be done out of compulsory. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves in him, you shall receive a contribution for me. God wanted contributions from those who were moved to give. Those who give from a a willing and cheerful heart. God does not force our worship nor our giving. But He does call us as His people to give sacrificially and willfully. Unto him. And the call is specific to what's needed in constructing this tabernacle. Verse 3. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yawn, and twine, fine twine, linen, goat's hair, tan, ram skin, goat skin, Acadia wood, uh, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastplate, breastpiece. Now, where in the world was a nomadic people who had just spent their existence in slavery for 40 years supposed to get some material like this. This was going to be a great adventure to go find this stuff, right? Well, no, not at all. If you remember, the Egyptians had given them these things. God promised the Israelites that they would not leave Egypt empty-handed. And He made good on that promise by allowing the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians as they were leaving. 
The Egyptians literally, if we remember in the text, they literally gave the Israelites these valuable things of gold, compelling them to please get out of our land in these plagues. So God provided these riches. And now He calls them to return a portion of them to His work, to the construction of the tabernacle. This is exactly what applies to us today. God calls us to give. To give back willingly, cheerfully, and sacrificially for His kingdom work but to give a portion of what He has already provided for us. Everything we have is His already. We're to give back to His kingdom work. Now the purpose behind this sacrificial giving is spelled out in verses 8-9. through Put your eyes there. And it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The construction would be a sanctuary or a a holy place for God to dwell with His people. In their very midst, the text says. So the purpose of all of this is that God would dwell among His special people. This is Exodus 19.4. This is what it means to be God's chosen people, His special possession, that they might be a holy nation. This is what it means. God will be with you. He will dwell with you. So it would be the actions not of man, not the special supplies they have, or the location of the structure itself, which will mark it as holy. God's presence will mark it as holy. God's presence will set them apart and this place apart. This tabernacle would be set apart by the presence of God and for the purposes of God. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us that God has come to us in His grace. We can, in fact, approach God solely because He has made a way for us to do it. God, in His grace, prescribes the the means by which we can approach God and be in right relationship with Him. It comes solely through His prescribed means. For the Israelites, this required the construction of the tabernacle. And and while in terms of its size, it's actually not that impressive. It's actually not that big. But, But everything regarding this tabernacle was in fact spectacular and magnificent. Every detail was important. For in it, God would manifest His presence to His people. And His presence was to be seen through this, through these specific instructions for the rest of these two chapters. Now, before we dive into these specific details, two little short applications here. First is this. The details that we're going to walk through speak to the the reverence that we should have when we worship God. We don't casually walk into the presence of a holy God. We do so with reverence. And the details here are meant to portray that and to explain that to us. That God is holy. We don't casually walk into His presence as sinners. But these details should also see the beauty and the glory and the blessing of Jesus. We don't have all of these details today to worship God. Because God has done something miraculous in His Son. Making a way for us to to be reconciled to Him and to worship Him through His Spirit. So as we begin, we begin first with these details, the, 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 the presence of the Ark here, the Ark of the Covenant. So God's instruction 
begin in the center of the tabernacle with the most important feature, the Ark of the Covenant or the Testimony. This was the only piece of furniture located within the innermost part of the tabernacle, the most holy place or the holy of holies it was called. I'm going to read beginning in verse 10, 10 and 11. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. This was a a cube-shaped box, about two cubits on either side. A cubit is about 18 inches. This was made of a particular acacia wood, and it was overlaid with pure gold, it says. Inside and out. Four rings of gold would mark the corners. And two poles made of acacia wood would, overlay with, would be also overlaid with pure gold to be placed in these rings for the purpose of transport. For no human hand was to touch this ark, lest they die. We know this from the story of Uzzah. Now, while symbolic, no doubt, the ark also had a functional value. Verse 16 says, and, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. The ark was to contain the testimony or the tablets of the Ten Commandments, a written record outlining the terms of the covenant. The book of Hebrews tells us that inside there was also a, a pot of manna and Aaron's rod that had budded, all serving as a reminder of God's great redemption through the Exodus story. Verse 17 outlines the covering or lid of the ark. It refers to it as the, as the mercy seat or the atonement cover. It too was to be made of pure gold. And on the top, two cherubim, hammered of pure gold. They were to be facing each other. But as verse 20 says, their wings shall overshadow the mercy seat and their faces should be bowed down. A depiction of reverence before the majesty of God's presence. Now, Cherubim have nothing to do with cute, fluffy angels. These hammered figures were depictions of warrior angels, really reflective of Genesis 3 and the cherubim whom God sent to protect Eden with the flaming sword. And as mighty as they are in God's presence, they must bow and they must cover themselves. Verse 22 tells us why the ark was of such central importance. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy, sheet, the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment of the people of Israel. It was from this throne God would meet with His people. Obviously by way of representation through Moses and then through the high priest. And this meeting could only take place by means of God's mercy. And going forward, the ark will be tied to the Day of Atonement, where the blood of an unblemished animal would be applied to the mercy seat to atone for the people's sins yearly. But with all the details included, what's actually really important is what's omitted. In every pagan temple the inner sanctuary would be be marked by an image of their God. But instead here, we have the Ark of the Testimony. An empty throne containing the Ten Commandments. Now we could take this many places application-wise, but 
This reminds us that we do not worship a God of our own imagination, but the God of divine revelation. Pagan idols were nothing more than man's imagination of who God was, who they wanted Him to be so that they could worship Him as they would like. It was the crafting of God in man's image and likeness. Yahweh would have no part of this. Yahweh created us. And we can only worship Him rightly when we know Him truly in accordance to how He has chosen to reveal Himself. And we must be careful, brothers and sisters, about crafting God in our own image. Now, we may not get out the hammer and the tools and start chiseling away and bow down to this. But we tend to pick and choose certain verses and ignore others in the Bible to craft a Jesus that's more suitable to us that we would worship. He ends up looking more like us than the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus can become something of a middle class American whose aim is to simply help us raise our kids well. Get them into good schools. Keep them out of trouble. Get them into a good college. Move on in life. He, he can be nothing more than just helping us live comfortable, moral, upright, peaceable lives. No. We don't worship a God of our imagination. We worship the God of biblical revelation. As the people of God, we worship a God not in our own image, but the image that is, re, that is revealed to us. Secondly, though, God's presence, we come to this table, this bread of presence. Now, as we move to the table of, table of bread, we move to what resides outside the most holy place. We're going to kind of be going from the inner outside as we work through these instructions. And the first thing is this table of bread. And it too shall be made of uh, acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold, including the molding and trim. And it, it also shall be given four rings and poles of, of gold for transport. There were also to be plates, dishes for incense, and drinking containers all made, it says, of pure gold. But most importantly, upon this table was to rest the bread of presence. Twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes of Israel. To be the people of God is to have been graciously given a seat at God's table. God has made a way for His people to be with Him. And the intimacy of His language here cannot be overlooked. Intimacy is the foundation of our relationship with God. I, I think of David's words in Psalm 23, right? You, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall what? Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This table represents... The fact that by God's grace, through His mercy, He's given us a seat at His table. Thirdly, there's this golden lampstand. The, the golden lampstand, as we move to the second part of the, the tabernacle here, was also in the same room with the bread of presence. And as we, as we move out, we start to see it was made of pure gold as well. You see that. It was handcrafted. It has 
bases and its stems, its cups, its flowers are all one piece. And it's estimated this was about 75 pounds of pure gold. This was no ordinary lamp. The design resembled six branches of almond blossoms which function as the cups on the top. Similar to what, we would, la- what would later be known as the a menorah we might call The instruments to care for the lamps were also equally to be made of pure gold. Seven lamps were to shine on what was in front of it, verse 37 says. Symbolically, this lamp was to resemble a tree, most likely recalling the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We have cherubims, now we have a tree. Next we come to the tabernacle structure itself. Chapter 26 now, as we turn into it, focuses on the structure itself, beginning first with the curtains. Now, we've got to remember first, this is a tent. It's not a building. It's not the temple yet. This is the tabernacle. This is the tent. This is one that had to be mobile as well. So it needed to be lightweight and able to be disassembled as the people journeyed with the Lord. So multiple sets of curtains are to be made, establishing specific zones to ensure proper worship takes place. There are to be of fine twine linen. From blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked into them, verse 1 says. So while God's presence was to dwell among the people through the tabernacle, access to Him was to be limited and guarded at every step. This was not to keep, uh, not to keep the people out of the presence of God, but to protect the people from the presence of God. To do these, these curtains created three divisions We have the the courtyard outside we're going to look at in a minute. We have the holy place containing the table of presence and the lampstand. And then we have the most holy place containing the ark. Verses 7 through 14 record uh, the curtains that are to be made to cover the tabernacle on top. In fact, four layers are a service covering. The lowest of tightly woven linen, the, the lowest meaning the one closest to the structure itself. The next was to be of goat hair, the third of tan ram skin, and the fourth to be of some kind of leather. These were attached with clasp of bronze draped over the sides. Verses 15 to 30, we find instructions regarding the the actual physical structure itself. Both the uprights and the bars on the walls should be made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. There were 20 upright poles on either side with six vertical bars to comprise the side walls. And the same pattern was continued upon the small, um, smaller back wall. Special corner frames held everything together with silver braces for the structure to rest in. The chapter then closes in, in verses 31 to 37 with the instructions for the veil separating the Holy of Holies and the screen which forms the main entrance. Put your eyes on chapter 26, verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate from you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil, the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. You shall put the table on the north side. So this 
special curtain or veil is woven with the best yarn, with the most in, uh, intricate, uh, detailed, and skilled pattern, with cherubim stitched in it. And it shall be hung from pillar and hooks of pure gold and serve as a barrier between the holy place and the most holy place. Then in verse 36, we see how the five gold pillars at the entrance were to, cover, were to be covered by a screen, it says. Very similar and yet very distinct from the veil. While blue and purple scarlet yarns are, and fine, line, fine linen were required, it says here it was embroidered with needlework. It was to be similar in the other curtains in the interior without the cherubim and with less intricate handworking. And still, instead of silver bases, the pillar at the entrance rested on bronze bases. Again, brothers and sisters, there's a reverence here into worship in these details because we're sinners. But then there's the, we come to the altar here. We now move outside of the tabernacle itself to the court, to this bronze altar, measuring seven and a half feet tall or long, and seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. It was to be made of the same wood covered with bronze, though. And all the utensils are to be made of bronze. As we move outside of the tabernacle, we see no more gold. It too was to be mobile, requiring poles, which will also be overlaid with bronze. And then next we come to the actual instructions of the court itself. The Israelites, they were a tent-dwelling people at this time. And the people would set up camp according to their tribes around the tabernacle with God's presence in the midst of them, literally in the center of their life. Life was to be centered on the presence of Yahweh. And yet, while the tabernacle displays the fact that God is with them, it was also depicted very clearly He was separated from them. Walls and curtains would guard and separate His presence from them. There was a clear barrier or a line between the tent of the people and the tent of the Lord has this fence-like structure. Sixty wooden poles overlaid with bronze standing in copper sockets with silver capitals comprise the fence structure. Fine twine linen curtains form the seven and a half foot tall barrier which would have been stabilized all around by guide wires. Entrance was only possible through a 30-foot wide gate that was covered by a screen similar to the one providing entrance into the tabernacle. And then our final set of instructions includes this oil. It says that the people were to bring pure beaten oil in verse 20. Pure beaten oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set to burn. And as I said, those are our instructions. Those are the details as we kind of walk through them. Now I want to give us in the rest of our time from these instructions, I want to give us two theological truths to help us today think about these instructions regarding tabernacles. The first one is this. I want us to consider first the distinction of Israel's king. The distinction of Israel's king. So all of the repetition, all of the details of this section, as difficult as they are to kind of study and work through, 
point to the heightened significance of the tabernacle within the Exodus narrative. And all of it is meant to display the distinction of Israel's king. A house of worship, including elaborate cultic practices, as I said, was common during this time. All of the surrounding nations offered worship to a local deity. So in principle, there is really nothing unique in principle about the construction of this tabernacle. Yet in another sense, every detail provided is meant to display the truth of Psalm 86.8. There is none like you, O Lord, among the gods. O Lord, none are, nor are there any works like yours. As already mentioned, we see this distinction through what's not present in the tabernacle. Israelite life and worship was to be centered on the throne with no idol present. And yet this lack of image paradoxically placed more focus on God Himself. Yahweh was their King. He is the great I Am, the self-existent One. God is defined by Himself and no other. And He has chosen to, to, be re, to reveal Himself through His mighty act of redemption, culminating in His covenant relationship with His people. He is distinct in every way. And every detail points to this truth. So as, we, as you move from outside to inside to the inner parts of the tabernacle, the types of fabric, the types of metal grow more precious. The outer tent fabric is less magnificent in both material and workmanship than the outer curtain. And the outer curtain is less magnificent than the veil in the Holy of Holies. You go from animal skin to goat hair to blue to purple scarlet. Some dyed with wool, some including skilled embroidery of cherubim, some not. Metals follow the same pattern. Outside they're made of copper. Inside we go from silver to things overlaid with gold to things made of pure gold. So the preciousness of metal and the intricacies of fabric correspond to the proximity into the Holy of Holies. The most elaborate metals and workmanship are found in the most interplace of the tabernacle where God, in fact, says He will dwell. So what's the point? God is distinct in His holiness. Commenting on these details, one author concludes, God's holiness is the very essence of His being and is intrinsic to Himself. The gradiated sequence of the tabernacle describes the gradual distancing from the ultimate source of absolute holiness. The gradations of holiness are one way of articulating this, of giving voice to God's unapproachable holiness and of emphasizing His ineffable majesty and excrutable mystery that He is. The Israelites were to worship Yahweh as distinct from all other gods in all forms of paganism. But they were also to worship Yahweh as distinct in every way from themselves. The absolute holiness of God and the unholiness of humanity is the foundation of true worship. Without those two truths being believed and accepted and understood, we cannot worship God. His ultimate uncompromising holiness and humanity's unholiness due to our sin. God would dwell with His people through the tabernacle. 
But if God was to remain with them, He had to be worshipped as distinctive from them. To approach Yahweh in worship, there was a wall that could not be scaled. There was a gate which had to be entered through. There was an altar upon which a sacrifice must be made. There was a veil which could only be entered by the way of a mediator and a mercy seat upon which blood must be applied. The details testify to the distinction of Yahweh. He's holy. We are not. The tabernacle was a temporary tent teaching us that worship of the one true God is possible solely through the means He prescribes. And praise be to God. He has prescribed a means for us in Christ. As we mentioned last week from John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. Tabernacled is our Word. Tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the incarnation, in the birth of Christ, God came to dwell with us by becoming one of us. God came to reveal the perfection. Jesus came to reveal, to, to reveal the perfection of His Father's person and the power of His redemption through His Son. Jesus is the, the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus came to fulfill every requirement necessary to ensure that we, sinful humanity, can be in right relationship with the Holy God. He lived the perfect life we should have lived, never sinning. In perfect obedience to the Father, and He died the sacrificial death for the forgiveness of sin we so desperately need. Jesus is the gate we enter. Jesus is the Lamb slain for us upon the altar. Jesus is the great high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies. And it is Jesus' blood that was sprinkled upon the altar, releasing the mercy of God on our behalf. Jesus is God's prescribed means for us to be in relationship with God. God forever dwells with us in Christ if we know Him through Christ. Second theological truth. The centrality of Israel's mission. God dwelling with His people is the point of the tabernacle. And it's really the point of the whole Bible. The Garden of Eden was a place marked by the unhindered presence of God with humanity. The Bible says God walked with man in the cool of the day in Genesis 3. But this would all change after the fall. When our first parents sin, choosing to deliberately disobey the voice of their Creator, resulting in what? Their exile from the Garden. Due to sin, God could no longer dwell with His people. But in response to our sin, God acted in grace, calling Abraham and making a promise that He would establish a people for His purposes in redemptive history. And though He would temporarily meet with the descendants of Abraham, we see this. We see Him meeting with Jacob. We see Him coming down in an altar in multiple places. The tabernacle was God's gracious plan to again dwell with His people to begin the recovery of what was lost in Eden. God rescued Israel that He might dwell with Israel. And this dwelling with His people was always intended for the greater purpose that His name might be known in all the earth. 
That was Israel's mission. To be a kingdom of priests. To be a holy nation. The Mosaic covenant was seated in the Abrahamic covenant. Which promised that all nations would be blessed through Israel. And that mission was contingent upon Israel displaying the glory of Yahweh by living in covenant faithfulness to Him. God had revealed the power and beauty of His glory in the Exodus and the perfection of His person through the law. In accordance to His grace and and His prescribed means of the covenant, He had chosen to dwell with His people. And in response to His redemption, Israel was to live in faithfulness to Him as a testament to, his, to the glory of His great name in all the earth. The tabernacle was to be an invitation to the nations to come and see the glory of Yahweh, the God who dwells with His people. Israel was to draw the nations to Yahweh. Psalm 96 makes this clear. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory where? Among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are where? In His sanctuary. Israel was to call the nations to see, to taste and see that the Lord is good. But Israel failed. Similar to our first parents in the garden, Israel chose sin. They chose to live in covenant unfaithfulness to God. And eventually Israel too was exiled from the land. Due to their sin and rebellion, God's glory could no longer dwell with God's people. We see this most difficult passage in Ezekiel where it says the glory of the Lord departed the temple and left. But praise be to God. That He acted again in His grace by sending His Son to dwell among us. Jesus is God's permanent dwelling place with man. Jesus came to reveal the perfection of the Father's person and the power of His redemption through Himself. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He is Emmanuel, as I said, God with us. God is now building a new dwelling place through the work of the gospel. God dwells not just among His people, but in His people through the work of the Holy Spirit. Corporately as the church, we together, we're, we're living stones being built up into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Christ being the chief cornerstone. And we are called to give cheerfully, sacrificially, for the construction of God's new dwelling place. And the instructions of building God's new dwelling place are clear, specific, and no less detailed for us. What are they? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And what do we promise with? Promised with the perpetual presence of God dwelling with us in Christ. The final verse there says what? And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. To be the people of God is to participate in the mission of God. Where Israel's mission was to come and see, ours is to go and tell. 
Instead of come and see the God who dwells with His people in the tabernacle, we go and tell of Jesus, the Son who tabernacled among us, providing rescue from our slavery of sin and the means of which we can be made right with God. And I want you to turn over to chapter 40. You should put your eyes on verse 34. 40 verse 34 and 35. As I said, these are, we're in the instructions right now. We're going to close out Exodus with the construction of the tabernacle. They're actually going to build the tabernacle. They're going to consecrate the tabernacle again through the covenant. They're going to institute worship. And these are the final words of Exodus. Verse 34. Everybody there? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud covered on it, settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's repeated twice there. That was Israel's mission. To come and see. To be the people whom God would dwell with so that the nations might know the glory of Yahweh. By His grace, God had, re- had redeemed His people to dwell with His people. He established this particular relationship with His people so we could dwell with them. His glory could be made known through them. What I want us to hear is we share in this mission, brothers and sisters. We take part in this great plan of redemption. God has redeemed us in Christ. God has come to dwell with us through the Spirit of Christ that we might be built up into the church of Christ, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit, to make the glory of God known in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Last night at our, we had our men's barbecue here. A good barbecue. The word was preached. Two guys I'm watching who, I'm not going to call them out, who stayed up all night cooking barbecue. They're not, they're not dozing off. They're staying awake. We had a great time. Good fellowship in the Lord. But I was able to engage with a young man outside from a differing faith background he had visited. Found out I was a pastor. It's always that interesting take you have with someone. What do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? Oh, you're pastor. And of course he had lots of questions. It was great. It was a good, sincere conversation. But at moments we kept getting tripped up. And what I would just call some philosophical abstraction. The nature of reality, the origin of first cause, the freedom of man. All important topics for sure but all which can and was diverting us from the simple reality that to be human is to have been created to dwell with God. What is the nature of reality? What is all this about? To be human is to be created that you might dwell with God, that you might experience Him and know Him. All our longings, desires, difficulties, and pain testify to the loss of something. To the loss of this reality. 
The sin and brokenness of this world in our lives and in our lives comes as a result of what was lost in Eden. We've been separated from God. To be human, truly human, as God created us, is to dwell with and enjoy God. Church, this is where the loveliness and beauty of Christ should overwhelm us. In Christ, God has come to dwell with us and restore everything that was snatched from us by sin. In His person and through His work upon the cross, we can be made right with God. What was lost can be restored in Christ. In Christ, we can begin the process of receiving back our full humanity that was distorted, that is distorted by sin. We can, in fact, know God. We can, in fact, worship God rightly. We can know Him fully in Christ. God dwells with His people in His Son. This is our message. This is, this is what we're... To declare the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus lovely to you? Is He beautiful to you? Do you see the beauty and the loveliness of Christ? The glory of God in the face of Christ. What He has done for you. Do you see the distance of God from you in your sin? But have you experienced the nearness and partaken of the intimacy of God with you in Christ? That is the question of the gospel. If you're here this morning and God is an abstract reality to you, if He's a vague, distant thought to you or an idea you're trying to figure out, you haven't seen Christ. See Him. He's God's divine Son sent for you to die for your sin that He might bring you back to God. That you might taste and see that the Lord is good and that you might know and experience what it means to be truly human. To walk in freeness. To walk not in guilt and shame, but full of assurance of who you are in Christ. Do you know Christ this morning? Is He beautiful and lovely to you? If He's not, call to Him. Repent of your sins. Call out to Him in faith and ask Him to be your Savior who He has declared Himself to be. He's faithful and just to do it. But church, for us, your believer this morning, do you see the beauty and the loveliness of Christ? Because if we are to partake in the mission of Christ, we will not declare His glory among the nations if His glory isn't beautiful and sweet in our hearts. Is He beautiful and sweet to you this morning? But this is the, the beauty of Christ. And this is the Christian life. And brothers and sisters, this is where we, we are going. This is where we're headed. To receive, to receive the fullness of what it means to be the people of God. 
end of our Bibles, Revelation chapter 21. We read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, What? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, what was lost in Eden will be restored fully in heaven solely through the work of Christ. God will dwell forever with His people if we cling tight to His Son. I think we should just reflect this morning in closing. I want to reflect this morning on the beauty of Christ. Let you take some time to reflect upon the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. Is He that to you? Does your life reflect that? Does my life reflect that? Obviously, if you don't know Christ this morning, consider Christ this morning. For those of us who know Christ, Consider the beauty of Christ and the glory of God in the face of His Son. Let that be our motivating factor to live Christian life. Let's reflect before we pray. Oh God, how lovely is Your dwelling place. How lovely is Your Son. How beautiful and matchless is His glory. Lord, that we, who lost so much due to our sin, would be able to gain so much in Christ. What an unthinkable riches. Help us to taste and see every day that the Lord is good. To know the light of Christ, His person, His work, we know without a doubt that the Lord is good to us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for my own heart. Lord, that I wouldn't live my life out of compulsion. I would live my life motivated by the beauty of Christ. In light of who you are and what you've done, Lord, I want to live for you. Let that be our prayer this morning. Let us proclaim you, speak of you, declare you, announce you. Because we love you. And we enjoy you. And we want to spend forever with you face to face. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are building us up into a spiritual dwelling place by your spirit. Thank you that Christ is our chief cornerstone. We are secure and sound in him. Build us up into your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.